This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by digital media. Today's sponsor is SoFi. SoFi finds great people to invest in and backs them for life. Besides great rate loans, they offer career services and events for every member. Find out more at SoFi.com. That's S-O-F-I.com. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com. Today's show is also sponsored by Mac Weldon. They make the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you'll ever wear. I can attest to that because I'm wearing the socks right now. Can you see, Nate? <laughs> I can totally see, yeah. You can, you can see through the desk. If you could, you could see these awesome Mac Weldon <laughs> socks I'm wearing. I bought them with my own money. That is the best endorsement I can give. They're also naturally antimicrobial, which means you will stink less when you wear them. You may not even stink at all. They're smart design, premium fabrics. It's easy to get this stuff. You go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off your order with the promo code RICO. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. If for some reason you do not love these beautiful, comfortable, nice-smelling socks, keep it, but you'll love them. 20% off, that's good for you, it's good for me. If you use that code, it's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. I'm here with Nate Silver from 538.com. Actually, Nate runs 538.com, which does awesome uh, political analysis, sports analysis. Anything else I'm missing, Nate? No, that's it. I I forget I run the site sometimes like sometimes i'm like i can't believe they're making us work so hard and like i'm the day in this case but but thank you happy to be on thanks for coming i want to talk about politics right now that's what you're best known for well actually you're famous for a bunch of things but currently you're famous for being a, a political analyst analyst prognosticator yeah all of the above i guess right uh um, so tell us what is going on today this week this is gonna we're gonna do a little time warp because yeah. when this thing drops i think we'll have gone through another primary but okay. as of today as of this week, where do we stand with Trump, first and foremost? So as of this week, we're in, I wouldn't quite call it a holding pattern, isn't quite the right metaphor, but it looks as though Donald Trump is tracking very close to the 1,237 delegates he'd need to clinch the nomination before the convention. But close means that if he had one state where um, that was a winner-take-all state where he didn't win, where he was supposed to win, he would fall off track. If he has a state or two where he overperforms, he would pass the bar more easily, but it's really close. So far, he's won 47% of delegates. Um, You now have other candidates who have dropped out, and so he needs about 57% of the remaining pledge delegates. There are some complications we don't need to get into about what are bound versus unbound delegates, but he's got to do well. He has a lot of states that look pretty good for him. New York, for example, is one of the most important states where he'll probably win a lot of delegates. But still, this is not the nomination process that the Republican Party would have wanted. Right, but just to be clear, you're saying he's got a path that's a straightforward path, basically, to win the nomination prior to the actual convention. I would not say it's a straightforward. It's a straightforward in the sense that you're on the highway and you're not quite sure if you have enough fuel to make it to the next gas station, right? So, you know, the stretch of land is flat, but if something goes wrong, if a truck pulls up in front of you and you lose speed, well, that might be all it takes to make you run out of fuel. Now, to torture this metaphor more, what happens if he does run out of fuel doesn't necessarily mean that all of a sudden, snap, John Kasich is the nominee. It might mean instead that he has to make a deal, which Trump is known to do, and that he talks to Kasich delegates or talks to undeclared delegates and before Cleveland brokers a deal. But right now, it's like he, you know, we had a panel we convened of eight experts. I'm doing the air quotes around experts, but eight people who really track this delegate math. I think we had Trump getting to 1209. That's the column he put out today. The column we put out today, yeah. yeah. 1209 versus 1237. So that's a sign of, of how razor thin it might be either way. And then, then just as a sidebar, uh, when it comes to Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, that's a non-question for you. That's Hillary Clinton. It's not There's- really. I mean, you would need something very dramatic to happen to Clinton, where so far, 
the Democratic race is easier to figure out math-wise because, number one, it's all proportional. If you get 62% of the vote, you get 62% of the delegates, roughly speaking. So, so far, Clinton has gotten 58% to Bernie's 42%, and we're halfway through. So that means in the second half, Bernie would have to beat Clinton by an average of 15 or 20 points, not just once in a while. So it's mathematically possible. The analogy I make, I'm not sure if we have a lot of golf listeners on this podcast. It's probably not a golf crowd, but like, um, it's as though someone has a four-stroke lead with two holes left to play, where mathematically, of course, you can triple bogey something. I make um, a Greg Norman joke here, right? Greg Norman or Vandeveld See, or whatever. Just, but that's the but Clinton would knowledge. have to choke or something would have to happen. It's kind of out of Sanders's hands right now. Right. We're so, in an indictment or new scandal territory, I think. Okay, good. So let's go back to Trump now, because that this is the topic of the year. Yeah. So last summer, um, when Trump sort of first showed up on the stage, my reaction, everyone's conventional wisdom was, this is not a serious candidacy. As he got, gained a little steam throughout the summer, I think in part because people wanted something to talk about, in part because it was an interesting idea. That's yeah. the idea that he, he might actually be a candidate seemed to get traction. And to a lot of folks, including myself, you were a reassuring voice saying, no, this is all bullshit. Trump is not a real candidate. Um, here's why. And you said it over and over again throughout last summer, throughout the fall. You are famous for being really smart about this stuff, getting the stuff right. Famously, you called all 50 states in the last election. So what happened this time around? What did you get wrong? Well, I think there are things we got right and things we got wrong. Our theory was not that he would spontaneously combust. And so we were kind of frustrated with people who were lumped in with saying that, oh, he's just going to fade. We thought he would have trouble with a couple of things. Number one is we thought he would have trouble consolidating support, where clearly there's a substantial minority of the Republican Party that supports Donald Trump. Usually you can't win with only a minority of the vote. You have to expand your coalition at some point. But Trump may. He has a 37% plurality so far of the vote. The way the delegate rules work, it's 47% of delegates. But there is a lot of resistance from Republican voters, and I think that's a big part of the story that gets missed. We He's also tremendously that unpopular within, within the party. About half of Republicans would not want Trump as their nominee. Right. So by contrast, about 20% of Democrats wouldn't want Clinton as their nominee, which is a normal, healthy, quote-unquote, number. But, but to some extent, it's like, I think... We identified some of the unique facets of Trump's campaign, but they were not enough to stop him. Another thing we thought is we thought, well, these Republican Party elites, as we call them, would gather together and find some way to deny Trump the nomination. And they still could, by the way. A lot of this talk about the contested convention. I mean, if that happens, then kind of technically speaking, the early predictions are right because we had a six stages of Donald Trump that he would have to overcome. And the last stage was, well— if worse comes to worse, they will deny him the nomination at the convention. Now, based on what I know now, I no longer think that's all that likely, but still. Because you won, of, you just laid out a scenario in which they don't even have the chance to contest it, right? Yeah, so it's close. It's a question of, first of all, will he get just barely above 1237? But if not, you face the issue where are you going to risk a revolt among Republican voters? And Trump has threatened and in some cases inspired violence. In his voters, it's a story I think that's getting missed a lot. But, you know, you could do it, but there would be a price to pay. If he's well short, if he's at 1,100 and he needs 1,237 or 1,000, then I think he probably wouldn't be the nominee. The party would opt for someone else. But the kind of combination of, on the one hand, being pulled down by the fact that there are a lot of Republicans who don't like him. On the other hand, being pushed back by the party, 
we thought that would give Trump a, a very narrow path. I don't know. I mean, you can also argue that this is one of the most unusual things to happen in American politics in a long time. And if this is gonna, a black swan event, right? This is, you could make that argument or you could, you well, know, better than maybe, I do. Yeah. But look, you know, in the summer we said, depending on when you read us, he has a 2% chance, a 5% chance, a 10% chance. If you're going to say 20% at one point, I think 20%. So we did revise our views, right. right? I think we were, I mean, to be fair, we were probably more skeptical than like the average, but we weren't saying it was zero. But if you're going to have a 2%, 5% probability come through, it better look pretty weird. <laughs> you know, if it had been like a case where Trump won a couple of states early and then became this like normal candidate, and he's like, well, I've been a Republican all along. I just had to act a little nuts to make sure I could, you know. But instead, we are seeing the Republican Party on the verge of falling apart. I mean, I know those are strong words, but to have a nominee who is at odds with every major institutional group um, that was in power in the party before, I just, you know, there's like almost no recent precedent for it in American history. And I kind of don't know pre-World War II history well enough to say if there was a more distant precedent for it. But that is pretty substantial. And I guess one reason I kind of thought, well, this is very unlikely to happen because if it happens, it would be so incredibly consequential. Well, now that it's happening, I think it's incredibly it's consequential, consequential for the Republican Party. Do you think that looking back and sort of seeing sort of where you got it wrong, that was more because the Trump narrative didn't make any sense to you based on what you'd seen from other candidates or because there was misleading numbers, right? You're famously, you're disinterested in sort of narrative and traditional ways that the press describes a horse race. You say, no, no, this is mostly a statistically based thing. We can look at numbers. The numbers, they may not tell the truth, but they're not going to lie to us. So we didn't have a... The Trump prediction was my take. It wasn't based on a model of any kind. I mean, ironically, our our models, we do it state by state. Ironically, those models have been very pro-Trump, but we waited for those models until December or January when you had enough polling to be reliable. Because that was one of your critiques early on. You're saying people were, were giving these polls too much credence. People weren't. You were, you were doing primary and they, polls. They still were. I mean, it was ridiculous for, and you know, the other thing we thought too about Trump, by the way, is that at some point, the amount of media attention paid to Trump might decline. I mean, if you make someone the focal point of the campaign, and we're doing a study we're releasing tomorrow where of the Republican coverage, he was the lead story 70% of the time, 7-0, when there was a field of 17-1-7 candidates. And so, you know, to some extent, if that's the only thing people are talking about, then it becomes much easier to, to win with a plurality. If it becomes a referendum on Trump, the election and the opposition is divided. But, you know, but no, this is not about like a model per se. It's about saying, let's look at some basic heuristics. And the heuristic is number one, early polls don't tell you very much. And number two, usually if something has never happened before, it won't happen, which doesn't lead you to say it can't happen, but it leads you to say, we think the probability is, is low, single digits, low double digits until we got to a point in December or January where number one, the polls do become more reliable. And number two, we started to pick up signs that the Republican Party really didn't have a plan to stop Donald Trump. But but for us, it's about... And that's what about you wrote a, in January. You said yeah. it was kind of a mea culpa, and you were also saying, I think, the title of the post January, was the Republican yeah. Party is falling apart, and we wrote which in, is why we were wrong. And we in October, there were warning signs the GOP was acting unusually. So, I don't know. If you really go back and read every word of our Trump coverage, I think it was about as informative as anywhere you'd read. I'm not saying more, but I think, you know, you would have learned a lot about the issues that people are 
discussing now. We were way ahead of the curve in terms of discussing could there be a contested convention and talking about what the stakes really are and the tension between the GOP establishment and Trump and the fact that, oops, actually, he's not that popular with general election voters. And so, I don't know, it feels like kind of like we were um, like, you know, some dog in a backyard sniffing around the treasure, right? We didn't quite pinpoint it, but it seems like we were at least onto some some themes that were a little bit more profound than the back and forth kind of ping pong. Oh, look at what Trump said. Oh, look at his polls, right? Which is which is all you were getting from that's traditional coverage. That's the stuff you rail about. I think I do want to make one distinction here. I think that in general, this has been a challenging story for everyone. I do think that digital and print have done much better with the Trump story than television, right? So you could point to the New York Times or Washington Post and say, here are some things they got wrong about Trump, but they also did good, informed analysis and reporting. The perspective you're getting on television, I think, is not very good. Where this Super Saturday, for example, where maybe the best day Cruz had so far, where he won Kansas and Maine, nearly lost two other states, CNN did not mention until 1140 at night that Cruz had won substantially more delegates that day. So, you know, but the fact that Trump can hijack the news cycle anytime he wants. I mean, one way to put this is that Trump's candidacy reflects a failure of political institutions. The most obvious one is the Republican Party, but the media is also a political institution. And the fact that Trump is a candidate who tells so many lies and who incites violence and racism and nationalism as a way to draw support to himself and that the media, parts of the media have a great deal of trouble describing what is going on, to me, that represents a failing of political It's hard to imagine that the media has failed in terms of pointing out his flaws, either as a truth teller or that he's incited violence. I mean, it, I don't have to look so very we, hard to see those stories. We did an exercise in this, and we looked at memorandum.com as a site that we look at, and we looked at every day of coverage going back to when Trump declared in June of last year. And do you know how many days the fact that Trump had made calls to violence led the news is zero? Well, they don't want to call it. They don't want to say it's a, a call to violence, right? That's too subjective for them to sort of get their but head around. But it's objective. It's objectively what he said, right? So this whole notion of, like, media can have rules that are convenient for it institutionally, but please don't use the term objective to when Trump's campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, puts his shoulder, uh, puts his hand on a protester and grabs right, this is what happened this that weekend. protester. If you are saying allegedly, then you're distorting the truth. Now, that's not objective. It might be quote unquote neutral, but, but you know, that's not objective reporting in the sense that scientists would use the word right. objective I just mean, meaning truthful. I, I mean, broadly, the notion that like people need to unmask Trump or need to show that actually he's not a good businessman or the five things he said tonight were lies. It seems like he's completely inculcated from that kind of critique and you can point it out <laughs> as many times as you want. It's not going to have any bearing on his candidacy. Again, I think if you're someone who like we are, is actively involved in producing news every day, and you see literally every Trump story that comes across the wire. But you know, if you kind of do try and be objective, and we collected a bunch of data on what Trump stories led the news, one thing that's striking is that there was never any story at any point in the campaign that led the news for more than three days in a row. It's a lot of one and two day stories. So it's been extremely unfocused. The fact that Trump is condoning violence at his rallies, which I think is something which is a crossing the Rubicon moment that should be denounced, is kind of taken, oh, at parallel with the fact that he's insulting 
Carly Fiorina's appearance, which I find disgusting and misogynistic. But it's not remotely of the same magnitude of the fact that he is talking about riots if he's denied the nomination. Right, it's not equivalent. It's not. It's so it's, you know, it's the fact that everything devolves into he said, she said territory very quickly. I don't know. I mean, again, the prior, we talk a lot about what's your prior belief and then how do you collect evidence on that? But the prior is that you have a guy who's a demagogue who might win a major party nomination. You know, if a demagogue becomes successful, that speaks to failures of political institutions, including the failures of the media. And so I think there needs to be a, a better you know, more effort to reconcile this. There are really difficult decisions to make. Does that mean that you don't put him on TV as often? You know, I don't know, maybe, but people I think should be staring down this question because when you try to think about not every single story that comes across the transom, but what stories are actually covered consistently in the fact that Trump can take the media's eyes off the ball and have them cover um, whatever story he wants with one stray statement in a speech, the fact that there was very little time spent on vetting Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and John Kasich, um, all of whom needed some vetting, frankly, to me, that reflects a, a failure of, of the media culture. Well, I want to keep going. I want to ask you how you think ABC is doing. Maybe I'll do that right after <laughs> I, I actually sell, sell products. This episode is brought to you by SoFi. SoFi is changing things up in the financial space by offering great rates on things like student loan refinancing, mortgages, and personal loans. They also provide awesome perks that big banks can't like career services, nationwide member events, an entrepreneur program, and more. SoFi is all about staying nimble and innovative and putting members first. That's why they back their members for life. SoFi partners with people who have potential for financial greatness so they can help them get there and help them succeed. To learn more about what they have to offer, visit SoFi.com. That's S-O-F-I. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com. Today's episode of Recode Media is also brought to you by FrameBridge. FrameBridge is a Washington, D.C.-based startup. They're disrupting the traditional framing market. They have cool workflow and technology that makes it super easy and affordable to custom frame the things you love. I've got some kids' artwork that is headed their way very soon. They can frame anything. They'll send you a mailing kit for their artwork, posters, album covers, old photos, whatever. You send it to them. Their experts frame it. They send it back to you in days, fully ready to hang. You can even upload pictures from your phone, your Instagram, whatever you want. Pricing starts at just 39 bucks. And the best part, all shipping is free. It's a special offer to our listeners this month. Just visit framebridge.com, enter the offer code RECODE at checkout. That's RECODE, like the RECODE.net, for 15% off your first FrameBridge order. That's framebridge.com. Use the special offer using the code RECODE. You get 15% off. Thanks, FrameBridge. So, Nate, we're back. We're doing some very intense media criticism. And my, my question before I went to the ad was, you work for a television network. You work for a, a part of your deal at Disney is that you work do some work with ABC News. First of all, do you bring this critique up to them? I mean, I talk to people over there, but like, look, I am a contributor to ABC News, but I'm mostly focused on 538 where, you know, where we face these decisions ourselves and make our own editorial decisions. But, you know, I don't know, any sufficiently large media organization, you're probably getting a mix of coverage that I think is really awesome and a mix of coverage that I don't think is very good. And I don't think any of the networks would be exempt from that. I don't think any of the major newspapers would be exempt from that either. When you were at the Times and, and you, you were doing the Obama coverage of that, that election, folks would constantly say, oh, you're, you're rooting for Obama. You're rooting blue. You'd say, no, I, you know, you know, I, don't, I don't have a personal agenda in this. I've got my own views, but they're, they're out of this. In this case, you're taking a much more sort of what seems to be more of an advocacy role, or at least you're proposing one. It's not advocacy because the problem is that, you know, I think I am telling things like they objectively are. And I've decided to focus on the fact that the media is 
having trouble articulating that Trump has made calls to condone or incite violence. Like to me, if you can't get that story clearly across to your readers or your listeners, then it's not about Trump. It's about it's about media critique. And 538's always been kind of a combination of, on the one hand, empirical analysis. On the other hand, critiquing the conventional wisdom, which is formulated by the political press, because those two things go go hand in hand. Um, You're laying a lot of this at the foot of TV, in particular saying TV has failed. What's your sense of the role that, that social media, Facebook, Twitter plays in, in this election? In, in previous years, people sort of thought this would be a big deal. Maybe it wasn't such a big deal. There certainly wasn't a lot of money spent on that on yeah. ads. What's your sense of the role that Facebook and Twitter have, have played? So I'm a big user of Twitter myself, and I feel obligated to say happy birthday to Twitter today. Um, Ten but, years old. Look, I think social media makes it kind of harder to have focus in some ways, and kind of the the mob mentality can can become worse in some ways. Where what, do you, what do you mean the mob mentality? What, do you mean, what are you thinking about? That whenever Trump does or says something objectionable, that all of a sudden every reporter is kind of reading Twitter and all of a sudden is thinking about the story in the same way. Or a better example might be during presidential debates, where if you go and actually cover a presidential debate, you know, the first time I do this, I kind of thought, well, kind of everyone will be in, in the debate hall. And you can see how the men and women of New Hampshire are reacting in real time to what the candidates are saying. But in fact, you're in a giant gymnasium full of, of people who are kind of literally looking over one another's shoulder. And so, you know, this is the question to me of if you have an increasingly independent and diverse in some ways media, how can people mostly get the story wrong, whether it's the Trump story? And in this case, you know, I think we're in the majority that got the story wrong or um, something like the 2012 election where you had a lot of people saying it's too close to call when the polling and the data pretty clearly said no. Obama's in fairly good shape, you know, it's because that people are not thinking independently. They're trying to So you've to got be, that problem, whether you're talking about TV coverage or whether you're talking about the way people are reporting things on social media. But I think that makes it worse. And we wrote a post very early on about Trump, too, called Donald Trump is the world's greatest troll. And it talks about kind of the, the almost autoimmune response that you have when someone like trolls you and how he's kind of figured out like that's a skill that that seems to produce a lot of dividends. It's innate with him, right? Because he certainly doesn't strike you as someone who's got a nuanced view of social media. It's, it's, it's almost sort of a whatever pro wrestling skills he has to sort of translate really well to Twitter. Yeah, I'm not sure whether it's something innate or something practiced, or or but he knows how to rile people up. And there's a there's a quote that I'm borrowing from someone. I'll do it without attribution here, but it's like it takes ten times as much energy to refute bullshit than to create bullshit and Trump has realized that right where he'll put something out there and you know Jack Schaefer's written about this and people get all in a tizzy about it and by the time they've tried to kind of simplify the case down then he'll have moved the ball and he'll have said something else um, but I mean obviously the fact that he can use social media with no middleman required you know and again I think in the long run these are good tools to have I thought one of the funniest complaints you had was when Obama started using his Twitter feed and social media accounts to communicate directly with people, or rather some Obama aide signing as mm -hmm. Barack Obama, right? People are like, well, that cuts off our access. Well, well, good, you know? The press corps. Yeah. You know, one thing about 538 is that, you know, we are actually in some ways more traditional than you would think in terms of a lot of the people we hire actually have reporting backgrounds, and they'll go to Iowa and Ohio and report on these stories, but we don't rely, and in fact, we're very suspicious of having to rely on, on access. access for your coverage. 
Uh, and you feel that sort of being at a remove gives you more perspective and, and, you, and you're less beholden to a storyline, to a party, to a person. And I think that's, you know, that's why I think, you know, we get some things wrong. But that's partly why I think outlets that are a little newer and fresher, you know, I think BuzzFeed has had very good coverage of Trump this year because they're not as dependent on on maintaining relationships with people within the Trump campaign or people in the Republican Party. But, you know, whichever network is the first major network to tell Trump, you know what, we don't care if you appear on our morning show or not. That network, I guarantee, will provide the best coverage of Trump for throughout the rest of the campaign. So let me pull back a little bit. So sort of you've made a course correction with, with your Trump analysis sort of midway through the campaign. As And we're, we're in March. This We've got many months to go. How is that affecting your thinking covering the, the rest of the campaign up through November? I mean, to the extent that we think we had a pretty good process before, then, you know, we're very deliberative and we're very careful. And you can kind of see throughout the many months when Trump was a lead story, encouraging caution, but also considering the doubt we had in our own analysis. But to me, the story about Trump is substantially a story about a dysfunctional Republican Party. And if you have a dysfunctional Republican Party, then that bodes rather poorly, probably, for how the GOP would do in November. So I think the implication that, well, Trump defied predictions before, therefore he will again. I mean, there's always some of that. I and mean, I definitely would not say that Trump can't win. I would say he probably has a 25 or 30 percent chance. But I would also say that it's a lot easier to appeal to 35 percent of 35 percent than it is to appeal to 50 percent. Um, of 100%. So given that we might be looking at something that we haven't seen in a long time or maybe ever, when we get to a general election in, in the fall and maybe Trump's going to be the nominee, are you going to be as comfortable calling states this time around as you were four years ago? Or do you say, no, no, things are different now. I've got to, I've got to sort of recalibrate how I'm so approaching there, the polls. There are some indicators of, so you know, one thing we'll probably do is that in 2012, we had a model that looks at a combination of what we call polls and fundamentals. Fundamentals mainly, mainly meaning the economy. When you have an incumbent president, then economic growth has historically been strongly correlated with his likelihood of getting reelected. You know, in this case, we might just say we're going to do something purely based on on polls. So try and make as few assumptions as possible. As a result of that, the confidence intervals might wind up being the margins of error to be more casual about it might wind up being a little bit larger. Although ironically, so you have a little bit more of a caveat with a call, you think? It's not a caveat. You know, our calls are a computer program that we write. You know, right. so the, mar the margin of error will be bigger. You say, look, there's, there's probably, especially chance. if, by the way, there's a third party candidate running, then historically that does tend to make things a lot wilder. But you could have the states being slightly rearranged. So I think they'll be kind of built into the model a little bit more caution. But still, you know, Donald Trump, if he becomes a nominee, would be the most unpopular candidate by far ever to win a party nomination. So, um, so whereas sort of before, the wonderful thing about being optimistic about Trump's chances before is that you didn't need any magical thinking. You just said, look, this guy's winning in all the polls. I know that he has some problems, but unless something changes, he's going to win. The opposite is true in the general election, where Trump right now is losing by Clinton to Clinton by eight points in the average poll. And I would tell you, these polls are not that reliable the same this time of year, the same time way they weren't reliable back in July of last year. But something does have to change. And the math for Trump is challenging demographically also in the sense that so between African-Americans, Hispanics, Asians, and white liberals, 
Together, they make up about half the country. Clinton's probably going to win among those groups 85% of the vote, which means Trump needs to almost sweep the other half of the vote. So white evangelicals, what I call uh, white picket fence voters, which are your kind of suburban voters plus working class white voters. And that group might do well with, but the problem is that of that half, half of those voters are women. And women, in many cases, strongly dislike Donald Trump. So if you're, if you're Clinton and you're getting white liberals, almost every African-American voter, the overwhelming majority of Hispanic voters, and some suburban women or most suburban women, well, you're probably going to win the election. I don't say for sure, but that's why. What, I do, say, what do you put his chances at today? If, he, if, it's, if we have a general election today, if he had it today, if he's, if he's he would, if he had it today, he would lose. By but what? things could change mm-hmm. today. He lose by eight points. I mean, it would be a pretty bad outcome for him today. But things can change by November, and so I give him a twenty-five, thirty percent chance of of winning, conditional on being the nominee by November. So let's pull all the way back. As we referenced at the beginning of this podcast, uh, you work at ABC. Uh, the last time you did this, you were at the Times. You left the Times. It was a, quite a high-profile move. ESPN basically hired you away from there um, and gave you your own site to build. It was sort of modeled on Grantland, Bill Simmons' site at the time. I mean, we're three years into this process now? So we just celebrated our two-year anniversary. Two-year anniversary. Um, but there was kind of a... There's a building a period here. of half a year where 5:30 it was was dark. So at the times you were you were a contractor. There was a site, but you didn't run it. Here you're the boss. It's your site. What what have you learned about running a, a website in this era, in a Facebook Twitter era? I mean, it's I don't know. There's almost so much. I mean, you know, one thing is that first of all, I think we had in some ways like a a challenging first three months to six months because you're learning how to do everything at the same time that you're publishing for the world to see all your growth and all your mistakes, right? So that's part of it. But a part of it too, which is kind of very basic boss 101 stuff, which is, you know, all of a sudden, instead of being me and maybe one colleague, it's a team of, of 25 or 30 people, depending on how you count. And the wonders of having brilliant people that you work with as colleagues, you can, you can do stuff as well or better than you can, or think differently than you can. I mean, that's, that's pretty great. And that's like more than worth the extra time that you spend managing people. Do you like managing? I think I'm a fairly relaxed manager for the most part. But, you know, look, I, I love my colleagues and I love being able to have a force multiplier for the sort of work that you want to do. And I love colleagues who are outspoken and push back and tell me when I'm full of shit. And so, so yeah, I mean, there's a certain bureaucratic part. You know, we have one time every year where I have to fill out performance evaluations. And I would not say that I enjoy that part particularly, but it's part of the job. But but yeah, look, I mean, I've always believed that, you know, the data, the method, the science, if you want to call it that, is one thing, but but it's not very meaningful unless you can actually go and kind of spread the gospel and and have a product that a lot of people read every day. And when you when you left, the, the conventional wisdom was, well, you did this amazing thing in, in the 2012 when you called the states, you generated all this traffic for the Times, but there's only election every four years. What are you going to do in the downtime? And, you know, there's not that much fantasy baseball statistics you can do. How have you, how have you sort of learned to sort of fill the time? And I pulled your comscore numbers before we came in. You're, you're up, started very modestly. I think you're like 8 million uniques now. How have you figured out sort of how to fill the non-Trump time? Well, I don't know. I mean, I thought in some ways our numbers were, <clears throat> were pretty good even before the election kind of got underway, but partly because we're not a website that relies very much on volume. So in August and September of last year, again, it would be higher now. But even then, our average story got about 150,000 views. The average New York Times story per digiday gets about 
50,000 views. So I think what people miss about whatever you want to call it, data journalism, I think people think that, oh, data journalism is is easy to do with just kind of putting numbers on the page, but there's no audience for it. I think that's 180 degrees wrong. I mean, I think there's a giant audience for data journalism. Our Iowa live blog got more views than the New York Times' live blog, not just then the upshots or whatever else. But it's really hard to do because it requires types of expertise that, that draw from many different areas. It requires a lot of precision. I mean, we're you know one of the few digital shops that really, really relies heavily on on copy editing, um, that every story is getting two or three or sometimes four reads does not mean that we never get anything wrong. But, you know, we are a type of sort of um, of slower journalism and it's different metabolism than where things are headed. And so I don't know. I mean, obviously, I was going to ask if you keep tabs on the, on the folks, the Times sounds like you do. You're keeping track of their numbers. And last year, you're throwing some elbows at, at Vox.com. My, my newish colleagues there. Have you patched things up with them? Are you guys on? Uh, I'm on this podcast. Terms? Look, I mean, I like. You are on the podcast. Thank you. I'm on the podcast. I think there's a lot of good stuff at box.com. And I'm not ending with faint praise. I mean, I think, look, I think they developed a lot too. I think it's a, it's a much better site than it was, was a year ago. I think the different kind of path you take is that I think Vox said, box.com. And by the way, I love a lot of the other Vox sites. I love they're all great. and everything. They're all great. Yeah, they're yeah. All great. Um, They're all great brands. You know, I think Vox said, .com said, let's first build out the product side and build out the audience. And then, let's be frank, then let's kind of up the signal ratio a little more. I think we said, you know what, let's first try and get the journalistic side right. That's going to be hard enough. And then let's focus on audience growth now. And those two paths, well, now if you look at Vox.com's numbers versus ours, they're going to be pretty similar in March. I think they'll probably have more uniques and we'll probably have more more page views, but pretty much similar. And so it's kind of like maybe it's a lesson that, you know, fundamentally maybe these tactics aren't as important as long as you have people who are willing to to look a little bit more toward the long term and say, it's a hard thing to launch a website. So we're more concerned about um, both sites are kind of celebrating their two-year anniversary about where you are in two years versus where you are now. But I don't know. I mean, it's also the case that if you're in media every day, I mean, I have an incredibly detailed set of opinions about every news outlet and how much I like them or dislike them. But like, you know, it's really boring stuff. And so and our so, entire website is dedicated to this kind of discussion, but we, we won't <laughs> get that deep into it. I did want to ask you about Grantland. When you came to ESPN, Bill Simmons recruited you and Grantland was sort of the model for what you were doing. Obviously, last year, uh, Bill got pushed out and the Grand Line was shut down. When that was happening, did that make you sort of rethink where you were at in terms of 538's place at ESPN? I mean, we were kind of literally friends with Grantland, and so it wasn't the easiest few days in the office. But we should we should stop here and say that you're being you're being watched like a hawk <laughs> by both your boss, Marie Donahue, and and a member of uh, the ESPN PR team. But you're doing very well. You know, Grantland is a site that we loved, but ESPN made it very clear to us from the start that we are evaluating these sites independently and how are they doing on their own. And Grantland was at a different point in their life cycle, whereas, you know, we have been we have been growing, obviously going into an election year, but adding personnel. And I don't know. I mean, you know, I would rather that Grantland had stayed. But the fact is that ultimately actions speak louder than words and the fact that we see we look at the metrics we look at you know the fact that the headcount's been steadily and sustainably we hope growing also that we've had very high retention people are are happy the traffic growth is 
not the first thing we look at, but not the last thing either. We've had more advertising deals recently with, um, I'm not going to give extra time to our advertisers, <laughs> um, but you know, it's successful in, in that sense. Nate, we've talked for about 40 minutes. We haven't mentioned sports at all. What's, what's the most interesting sports story you've covered this year? I mean, I think the Golden State Warriors are an amazing phenomenon that has sort of no press. I can't remember a team that was so good that so many people loved and that brought so many people joy. I mean, it'd almost be like if the U.S. World Cup team, I guess the women's team was a little bit like this, right? But if the men's team were also as good as the women's team was and kind of just every time they played, they brought people they had brought people joy, then, you know, that'd be kind of amazing too. But the Warriors are also a data story in the sense that they have figured out that the way teams were playing for years was not optimal and that you actually want to take a ridiculous number of three-point attempts if you have shooters who can who can bury the three. You want to play an up-tempo offense. It happens to make for a very exciting type of basketball, but it's kind of statistically grounded also. It's statistically grounded. Can you see other teams replicating what they're doing with success? Or do you say, well, no, they just happen to have Steph Curry. He's the best player on the planet. You can't do this without it, Steph Curry. I mean, watching the college tournaments, because every, <laughs> every kid wants to be the next Steph Curry, and you see more shots from 25 feet and so forth. Look, whenever you have a successful product, and this is kind of a stupid analogy between sports and media and everything else, then it spawns imitators. And I think you'll have first a couple of imitators who do it badly, and then a couple that do it more successfully. And ultimately, when it's infused into the next generation's DNA, it's these kids now that grew up watching Steph play, well, they'll create a a permanent sort of change. I think you sort of tied the two themes of the conversation very well together. I know. Look, I, you know, I'm on my own podcast I, now. I so think I you know and, how to I do this. And, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Tate. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening. If you enjoyed this interview as much as I did conducting it, and I did, please subscribe to the show at iTunes. While you're there, leave us a review. That's good, too. We've got other free Recode stuff. It's all free. Uh, my boss, Kara Swisher, hosts Recode Decode. Lauren Good from The Verge has Too Embarrassed to Ask. There's Recode Replay, too. You can see Nate's boss, John Skipper, interviewing with me at Code Media. All easy to find on iTunes. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, SoFi, Mac Weldon, and FrameBridge, and also to Digital Media for making this podcast possible. This is Recode Media. I'm Peter Kafka. I'm back next week. See you then.